This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Ever since the first McDonald's hamburger stand opened in 1940 in San Bernardino, California, fast food has been a part of life in America. While we might not always consider that a good thing, we can argue that fast food has become so ingrained in popular culture that we probably barely notice its impact. It certainly has become a convenience with two-parent working families who are constantly on the go. It's also almost a necessity as, over the decades, more people have taken to the roads for work commutes, vacations, or work trips and need a quick and cheap place to eat. Finally, it provides a way for those with limited incomes to enjoy a meal out. What could be more inviting than your neighborhood fast food joint? It's a place for teens to gather after school, families to have a meal, and some even have play areas for the kids. But there have been instances where fast food restaurants have become connected to heinous crimes. You may recall episode 36, where I detailed the shocking mass murder that occurred in a McDonald's restaurant in California in 1984. This is possibly one of the most well-known cases of a fast food-related crime. But I've found that there have been other, lesser-known instances that were even more brutal, tragic, and even bizarre. In this series, I will bring you three of these stories. First up, the story of a serial killer you may not have heard of before, who preyed on women in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, which were all linked to a particular fast food chain. This is Chapter 1 of Fast Food Felonies. The Taco Bell Strangler. Henry Lewis Wallace was just a regular Joe, according to most everyone who knew him. He was soft-spoken, polite, personable, a good friend, and an all-around nice guy, or so people said. He was always willing to help you out. His friends would later say that if you needed something, you'd call Henry. He'd always had a lot of female friends, as he was one of those guys who girls always liked. Some thought he was cute and funny, while others saw him as just a nice guy, a friend. They weren't all romantically interested in Henry, but considered him like a big brother. Henry Wallace was born in Barnwell, South Carolina, on November 4, 1965. His mother, Lottie May, had become pregnant by a man she was seeing who was already married. He left her soon after she revealed the pregnancy. Henry never met his father, and his mother didn't talk about him. She already had a daughter named Yvonne, and now was left with two children to care for on her own. She worked long hours in a factory, but still struggled to put food on the table for herself and her kids. Times were so tough that Henry lived with his mother and sister in a shack with no electricity or running water. His mother raised her children to be respectful and well-mannered. Henry was taught to call adults sir and ma'am. His mother was strict, expecting complete obedience from him. He learned not to argue with her, as she considered it very disrespectful, and doing so guaranteed he'd be harshly punished for not obeying immediately. When he was 12 years old, his father called him out of the blue to ask how he was doing, and told him that he would stop by later that week to see him. Henry was ecstatic. He'd always been envious of other children whose fathers were there for them, taking them on outings, playing ball with them, 
things he'd never had. He waited excitedly for his father to arrive. The waiting lasted for days, but his father never showed up and never called him again. Henry was devastated. Henry attended Barnwell High School and was well-liked by his peers. He was a big guy, reaching six feet tall and weighing close to 200 pounds, and he was looking forward to joining the football team. When his mother forbade him from playing football, he found a way to still be part of the team. As unusual as it was at the time, Henry became the cheerleading squad's first male cheerleader. He was the guy that was there to hoist the girls up high to complete some of the most challenging and athletic maneuvers. And it didn't hurt that he was surrounded by females. Henry always liked to be around pretty girls, and the cheerleaders became some of his best friends. He was outgoing, cheerful, and always a gentleman. He played basketball in high school and ran for student council. He also began taking classes that, for the most part, were overwhelmingly populated by female students, typing and bookkeeping classes. It seems he'd figured out how to constantly be surrounded by girls. He was teased and even bullied by some boys because of it, but it didn't seem to bother him. He graduated in 1983 and enrolled in community college classes, but his academic pursuits didn't go far. He was bright enough, but just not motivated. He took a part-time job as a school bus driver and at night worked as a disc jockey at a local radio station. His on-air moniker was The Night Rider. He had a following and was becoming a popular radio personality when he was caught stealing CDs from the radio station and was fired. In 1984, without a job, Wallace decided to enlist in the United States Naval Reserve. In December, he was sent to Orlando, Florida for basic training. On leave in 1987, Henry came home and married a girl he had dated in high school. Loretta Brabham already had a young daughter fathered by another man, but Henry was willing to raise the child as his own. He would later adopt her. But unknown to Moretta, while away in the military, Henry had developed an appetite for drugs and alcohol. What started out as occasional pot use became a cocaine addiction. When he returned home, he became addicted to crack cocaine and began stealing to purchase drugs. His first trouble with the law began in 1988, when he was arrested for breaking into a hardware store. He pled guilty to second-degree burglary and received two years probation. In December of that year, he was discharged from the Navy due to the theft charge. However, he was given honorable discharge status since his prior military record had been exemplary. Soon after Henry returned to South Carolina, Moretta became tired of his drugging and drinking and left him for good. He was heartbroken and tried to win her back, to no avail. He went home to live with his mother and older sister Yvonne, near Charlotte, South Carolina, where they now resided. Henry began working a series of part-time jobs, but none lasted very long. Either he got bored, didn't show up for work, or was suspected of pilfering items from his employer and was let go. For a time, he was hired at the Sandoz Chemical Company. But socially, Henry was still popular. His co-workers remember him as a guy with a good attitude and a friendly smile. He was a good listener and spent many break periods talking with them about their lives, giving advice and being a sounding board. He often commiserated with his female co-workers about their boyfriend problems. They appreciated him as a caring and protective big brother type of friend. 
He had many girlfriends and dated frequently. One girl he took a liking to was 18-year-old Tashonda Bathia. She was a senior at his alma mater, Barnwell High School. They struck up a friendship and were seen together often. His usual way of getting to know a girl was to become friends with her, talking to her and finding out about her life. Girls liked to talk to him. He knew this, and he also knew that they liked when he asked how he could help them. He asked Tashonda if she needed a ride to school, and she accepted. He was soon driving her places and would show up at her high school just to drop off lunch for her. Henry, the nice guy, was always such a thoughtful friend. But then in April 1990, a boy was fishing at a lake near Barnwell and discovered the nearly nude body of a young woman. The police would identify her as Tashonda Bathia from Barnwell. She'd been strangled and her body dumped. Eighteen-year-old Tashonda Bathia had been strangled and her body dumped in the lake in April of 1990. Henry Wallace, a friend of hers, was questioned by police, but since he had no prior record of violence or sex offenses, he was not considered a suspect for long. Then, soon after Tashonda's murder, Wallace was accused of attempted rape by a 16-year-old girl. The girl told police that Wallace had taken her to a motel in Ellendale, about 150 miles south of Charlotte, and had tried to rape her. When she began to scream, he stopped and took her home. Wallace's mother appealed to the girl's mother, asking her to drop the charges, but she refused. Wallace was not prosecuted, but instead required to complete a program for nonviolent offenders. It appears that the Allendale police were not alerted to Wallace's connection to the murder in the Barnwell area, as they were separate jurisdictions. Unfortunately, had this discovery been made, it's possible that many lives could have been saved. Tashonda Bathia would be the first in almost a dozen murders committed by Henry Lewis Wallace in the Charlotte area, although her murder would go unsolved for almost four years. Henry was interested in Tashonda from the start, and in giving her rides and bringing her lunch, he'd become her friend and earned her trust. But when his interest in her turned romantic, Tashonda began avoiding him. Maybe she didn't think of him as more than a friend. Maybe he wasn't her type. Or she thought he was too old for her. She was only 18 and a senior in high school, while he was 24. But when she began avoiding him, he grew angry. He asked to see her on some pretense and tried to win her affection one last time. She told him she wasn't interested. Henry would later say that he felt used. He grew enraged and raped Tashonda. When she told him she was going to report him to the police, he strangled her to death. He then dumped her body in the lake, hoping to conceal the murder. Not long afterwards, Wallace was fired from his job at Sandoz Chemical. His drug use continued and began to increase. In February 1991, he broke into his old high school and stole some equipment that he was then caught trying to pawn for cash. He served four months in jail on the burglary charge and then was released on probation, after which he returned to the East Charlotte area. Once in Charlotte, Wallace quickly made friends with his neighbors and co-workers. He talked about his Navy days, his time as a local DJ, and sometimes even spun records at birthday parties for friends. At first, he struggled to find a job due to his spotty employment record, as well as his criminal record, but he was a smooth talker and was clean-cut and polite. 
He bounced around to a few fast food restaurant positions before being hired as an assistant manager at a Taco Bell restaurant located on North Sharon Amity Road in Charlotte. No one noticed anything out of the ordinary about Henry Wallace at this time. He seemed like his usual happy-go-lucky self. No one suspected he harbored a dark secret. After the initial questioning about Tashonda's murder, the matter seemed to drop. But Wallace still wrestled with dark urges. In the spring of 1992, he acted on them once again. On May 27th, Wallace picked up a 33-year-old sex worker named Sharon Nance. Sharon was living with her aunt outside of Charlotte at the time and told her that she was going out for the evening to meet friends. Sometime that evening, she was hired by Wallace to perform a sex act. But he didn't have any money to pay her, and when she demanded payment, he became angry and started beating her. He beat her so severely that her skull was fractured. Sharon Nance was beaten to death that night. Her body was then dumped near the railroad tracks along Roselle's Ferry Road, where she would be found days later. Now Wallace had killed twice, but picking up a random stranger and killing her was not what had been playing out in his violent fantasies. He had a specific woman in mind, whom he watched while waiting for an opportunity to make his move. One of these women was Caroline Love. Caroline was the roommate of Sadie McKnight, Wallace's girlfriend. Caroline and Sadie were co-workers, working together at a nearby Bojangles fast food restaurant. On June 19th, a mere month after Sharon Nance's murder, Wallace entered Caroline's apartment with Sadie's key. The apartment was empty, but soon Caroline returned home. She was surprised at first to see her roommate's boyfriend there alone, but he quickly put her at ease, making small talk and explaining that he was just waiting for Sadie, who would be back soon. When Caroline turned her back to him, he grabbed her and put her in a chokehold, incapacitating her. He then dragged her into a bedroom and raped her. She continued to struggle, so he grabbed the cord from a nearby appliance and strangled her to death with it. It seems he hadn't thought ahead about what to do with the body, but quickly came up with a plan. He wrapped the dead woman in some bed sheets and then placed her into a garbage bag. He was big and strong and was able to drag her out to his car. He thought to lock the apartment door before exiting. He then drove outside of the city and dumped Caroline's body into a ditch. When Sadie returned home that night, she received a call from Caroline's sister, Kathy. The manager at the restaurant was trying to reach her, as she had missed her shift. They thought that was unusual and started looking for her, but she could not be found. Some things in the apartment seemed out of place. Caroline had planned to take her laundry to the laundromat that day, but the hampers were still full. A roll of quarters she'd purchased from her supervisor at work to do laundry with was missing. Wallace had taken it with him on the way out of the apartment. Kathy and Sadie decided to file a missing persons report with the police. They were accompanied to the station by Henry Lewis Wallace. He was never questioned, and Caroline remained a missing person for two long years. By the spring of 1992, Henry Wallace was already responsible for three women's deaths. None of the crimes had been connected. One was a murdered high school student in another town. One was a sex worker who investigators believed had been murdered by one of her clients. And the third was still missing, her fate yet unknown. 
Wallace was known to have been acquainted with the missing and murdered women, but still, no links had been made, and he was not considered a suspect. After the disappearance of her roommate, Sadie McKnight and Wallace moved in together, and in December of 1992, she became pregnant with his child. On February 19, 1993, 19-year-old Shauna Hawk attended classes at the local community college, and late that afternoon, returned to the home she shared with her mother. Soon after arriving, there was a knock on the door. It was Henry Wallace, her manager at Taco Bell. She let him in, and they chatted for some time. He began sharing the problems he and his girlfriend Sadie were having, which Shauna teased him about good-naturedly. Later, Wallace would say that he hadn't planned to hurt Shauna, but had merely come over to talk to her. He said he became angry and put her in a chokehold. After she passed out, he filled the downstairs bathtub with water and submerged her. Before leaving, he stole $50 from her purse. Her mother, Dee Sumter, returned home and noticed her daughter wasn't there, though her purse was on the table. Not finding her, she began to call around. Shauna had not picked up her godson from daycare, as was her usual routine, which alarmed Dee. She called Shauna's boyfriend, Daryl Kirkpatrick, who came right over to help Mrs. Sumter look for Shauna. As Dee was on the phone to the police, Daryl searched the house to see if he could determine where Shauna may have gone. As he passed by the downstairs bathroom, he noticed that the carpet outside of it was wet. He looked in the bathroom, and the shower curtain was drawn over the bathtub. Pulling it back, he found Shauna's fully clothed and lifeless body lying underwater in the tub. An ambulance was called, but Shauna was pronounced dead soon after. She had suffered a blow to the head that had caused lacerations and bruising, but this had not killed her. It was also determined that she had not drowned. An autopsy determined that she had been strangled to death by the use of a ligature. Wallace's story about merely putting her in a chokehold after becoming angry was a lie. He was most likely also lying when he said he had just come by to talk to Shauna. Dee Sumter, Shauna's mother, would become Henry Wallace's worst nightmare. She fought tirelessly to bring her daughter's murderer to justice. Dee and another woman named Judy Williams formed an organization called Mothers of Murdered Offspring, a support group for victims' families in the Charlotte area. She was the most vocal critic of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department, criticizing them for what she believed was a lackadaisical attitude towards the murders of young black women, such as her daughter Shauna. While Dee wasn't attributing all the recent murders of the women to one killer, she simply felt that the rash of murders were not being investigated properly because the women were all black and of lower economic status. Even though Henry Wallace had ties to three of the murdered women by this time and had been questioned about one of them, he had still not been identified as a suspect. The next woman found dead would also have ties to Wallace, as she was a co-worker at Taco Bell. Wallace needed money, and he thought Audrey Spain might know the combination to the safe at the restaurant. He stopped by her apartment and began chatting with her. They smoked a joint together, and then he turned on her. Throwing her to the ground, he demanded the combination to the restaurant safe. She told him she did not have it. He choked her and then dragged her into another room and began to rape her. She came to and begged for her life. He then told her to get dressed. This was another detail that threw off the investigation into these murders. 
Detectives initially did not believe the women had been sexually assaulted because most of them were found fully dressed. Wallace would later confess that he had either dressed them himself or, more often, made the women redress themselves after the rape. He knew they would turn their backs to him while doing so, and at that time, he had approached them from behind with a ligature and strangled them to death. This time, he used a nightgown and a shirt intertwined as a ligature. When Audrey was dead, he put her body into the shower to wash off any evidence, then placed her on the bed before stealing a Visa credit card and gas card and leaving her apartment. Her gas card was used several times. It's unclear why this wasn't discovered earlier. Six weeks later, he arrived at the home of his sister's friend, Valencia Jumper. He used the ruse that he needed to talk to someone about his girlfriend troubles. After they'd talked for a few minutes, he asked Valencia to call his girlfriend Sadie to tell her that he was there. He would often use this type of ruse to put the women at ease and then catch them unaware. When Valencia turned to dial the phone, he attacked her from behind, putting her into a chokehold and dragging her to the bedroom to rape her. He then used a towel to strangle her. Afterwards, he added a new element to the murder. He soaked Valencia's body in alcohol he found in the apartment, turned on a flame under a pan of food on the stove, and lit the house on fire with a match. Before setting the fire, he first removed some jewelry from his victim, which he would later pawn. The apartment was thoroughly engulfed in flames. After putting it out, firefighters would discover the pot of food blackened on the stove and Valencia's charred body lying in her bed. It looked like she'd forgotten to turn off the stove and fell asleep before the fire began. The county medical examiner would rule the death accidental and attribute Valencia Jumper's death to thermal burns. This was odd, since she had not died of carbon monoxide poisoning, nor was there evidence of smoke inhalation, which would normally point to the possibility that the person had died before the fire occurred. But the case was closed, and only later would the real cause of her death, ligature strangulation, be discovered. About the murder of his sister's friend, Wallace would later say, Valencia was like a little sister to me. I don't know why I ever hurt her. Five weeks later, Wallace would strike again, and again he would change his M.O., on September 15, 1993, he arrived unannounced at the home of his acquaintance, 20-year-old Michelle Stinson. She had often come into the Taco Bell that he managed, and they had struck up a friendship. Michelle was the mother of two young children, ages one and three. He entered her home, and they chatted for a while. Wallace told her he wanted to have sex with her. She gave him an excuse about being sick, and when he believed she was lying to him, he became angry and attacked her. However, there's no way to know if his account is true or not. It is just as likely that he used the same ploy he had before, asking her to make a call for him, etc., and when her back was turned, he overpowered her. Wallace raped her and then strangled her with a towel, but she continued to struggle, so he grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed her multiple times, killing her. Before leaving, Wallace ripped the phone from the wall for some unknown reason. Also before leaving, he redressed his victim. Her three-year-old son found his mother lying on the kitchen floor. Mercifully, he was not old enough to understand what had happened, but wandered to a neighbor and told him his mother was, quote, sleeping on the floor. 
Michelle Stinson lived only a half mile from Caroline Love's apartment and was also acquainted with Henry Wallace. But still, he was not identified as a suspect in either murder. Between September 1993 and February 1994, Wallace remained inactive. Two things may have contributed to this. The first was that in late September, he became a father. An ex-girlfriend named Wanda gave birth to a little girl she named Kendra. At the same time, Wallace was trying to patch things up with his current girlfriend, Sadie McKnight. He told a friend that he'd stopped doing drugs and was trying to get his life back on track. Acquaintances of his said that his appearance had improved. He was clean and well-groomed, where before he had looked glassy-eyed and disheveled. They encouraged him in his sobriety. But there were still problems between him and Sadie, not the least of which was that he had fathered a child with another woman. Before long, he began using drugs again, and in February 1994, Sadie left him for good. Also by February 1994, a full year had passed since Shauna Hawk's murder. Her mother was angry and frustrated that her daughter's killer had not been caught. Dee Sumter decided to appeal directly to the murderer by holding a press conference. With media in attendance and cameras rolling, Dee read a letter she'd written to her daughter's attacker. Dear Killer, I am the mother of Shauna Denise Hawk. I find it so hard to believe that an entire year has gone by since that horrible Friday evening when Shauna's dead body was discovered in the bathtub where you put her. I do not hate you, because what purpose would that serve? However, I do want you to come forth and confess to this horrible atrocity you have committed. Henry Wallace did have a response to Dee Sumter's plea, but it was not the one she, law enforcement, nor the public either expected or wanted. On February 20th, one day after the press conference, 25-year-old Vanessa Mack was found dead, strangled inside her apartment. Wallace had been the assistant manager at Taco Bell, where Vanessa's younger sister, Leslie, worked two years earlier. Leslie was friends with Henry and had introduced him to her sister. Henry told his employee that he liked her sister and wanted to date her. Leslie thought he was a nice guy and told Vanessa she should date him. Vanessa said she just liked him as a friend, as she was interested in someone else. But Henry would stop by to see Leslie and would sometimes ask Vanessa if she needed anything. Vanessa was a single mother, and she sometimes took him up on his offer to run errands for her or give her rides. She knew he kind of liked her, but he wasn't pushy, and she thought he was just being nice. By February of 94, Henry was back on drugs, now using crack cocaine heavily. His girlfriend had left him, and he was out of work. He needed money, he said, but he'd also been spurned by the pretty single mom, Vanessa Mack. He now decided on her as his seventh victim. He stopped by her apartment, and she let him in, and they chatted for a while. He asked her for a drink, and when her back was turned, he looped a pillowcase around her neck. He told her he wanted her bank card and an ATM code. She gave them to him. He then began choking her, dragged her into the bedroom, and raped her. He then told her to get dressed, after which he attacked her again, strangling her to death with a towel. He went to the bank ATM machine, but discovered that Vanessa had given him the wrong code number, and he could not withdraw any money. It wasn't until 6 a.m. the following morning, when Vanessa Mack's mother arrived to babysit her grandchild, 
that she was discovered dead in her bedroom. Her child was found asleep on the sofa. But police finally had one clue to go on. They found Vanessa's purse dumped and her ATM card missing. After contacting the bank, they learned that someone had been photographed by the camera at an ATM machine trying to use the card. The person's face wasn't clearly visible, as he was wearing a hooded sweatshirt with the hood drawn over his face. But they determined that it was an African-American male. One detail did stand out. The man was wearing an earring in his left ear. That was clearly a small gold cross. Detectives continued to work the case, following up on this clue. But March 1994 would be the worst month of all, with the Charlotte Strangler, as he was now being called, claiming three more victims. One of Wallace's co-workers, Vernon Lamar Woods, was also a friend. Woods had a girlfriend, and they lived together at the Lake Apartments, a complex in Charlotte not far from the Taco Bell where he and Wallace worked together. On March 8th, Wallace arrived at the apartment with the goal of raping and killing 18-year-old Brandy Henderson, Woods' girlfriend. However, when he arrived, Woods answered the door, surprising Wallace. He made some excuse about dropping by to pick something up and quickly left. But on the way out, he remembered another woman he knew who also lived at the Lake Apartments. Betty Bauckham, age 24, worked with Wallace's girlfriend Sadie at the local Bojangles fast food restaurant. He knocked on her door and asked to use her phone. She recognized him and let him inside. Pretending to look up a phone number in the phone book, he waited until she turned her back and then grabbed her in a chokehold. He demanded the keys to the restaurant, the combination to the safe, and the alarm code to get in. She refused and fought with him, scratching and biting him in the process. He was finally able to overpower her, and she gave up the information he wanted. He then stopped choking her. She asked him why he was doing this to her, and he said that he was sick, that he had hurt a lot of people. Perhaps at this time, Betty realized that he might be responsible for all the dead girls. She told him she forgave him, told him that God would forgive him, and tried to appeal to him to turn his life around. At this point, he renewed the attack on Betty, knocking her down, choking her with a towel, and dragging her to the bedroom. He raped her and made her put her clothes back on before demanding the money in her purse. She gave it to him, and then he continued strangling her until she was dead. He then stole jewelry and cash from Betty's purse. He pawned the jewelry and used the cash to buy crack. But later that same night, he returned to Betty's apartment to steal her television set and a VCR while Betty lay dead in her bedroom. Wallace had wrecked his car months earlier, so he was on foot. He decided to steal her car to cart away the loot. He placed the items in Betty's car and then returned to the apartment complex to carry out his original plan, to rape and kill Brandy Henderson. This time he knew her boyfriend was scheduled to work that evening and wouldn't be home, information he discovered when he talked to him earlier that day. Almost immediately after leaving Betty's apartment for the second time that day, he knocked on Brandy's door. She recognized Henry as her boyfriend's friend and let him in. She was alone with her 10-month-old son. Before long, he attacked her and demanded money. She had no money, only some change. He dragged her into the bedroom to rape her. The baby began to cry, and Wallace told her to quiet him. She picked him up until he stopped and then put him back in his crib. 
When she returned, Wallace strangled her until she was dead. As he was trying to remove any evidence he'd been in the apartment before leaving, the baby began to cry loudly. He took a small garment into the baby's room and tied it around his neck, choking him. He became quiet. He then took the television and stereo from the apartment and left in Betty Bauckham's car. Wallace pawned all the stolen items, then dumped the car in another part of town after wiping it down to remove any evidence. When Vernon Woods arrived at his apartment, he found the place ransacked and his girlfriend dead on the bed. He ran to the baby's room where he found a ligature tied around his neck. He removed it, and the baby began to cry. He tried performing CPR on Brandy, but when the paramedics arrived, they told them the sad reality that she was beyond saving. The baby was rushed to the emergency room. While he was conscious and seemed okay, they were worried that he might have suffered permanent damage due to oxygen loss. Prayers were answered when the tiny baby recovered fully and tests revealed that he'd suffered no permanent brain damage. It wasn't until the day after Brandy Henderson's murder was discovered that Betty Bauckham was also found strangled in the same apartment complex after she didn't show up for work. The day after Betty was found, there were a couple of breaks in the case. Again, there'd been no sign of forced entry at either Brandy or Betty's apartments. Detectives questioned Brandy's boyfriend to see if he could think of any men she might have felt safe letting into their apartment. He named three men, her cousin George, a friend named Elijah, and his co-worker, Henry Wallace. Detectives ran the records of all three men. Wallace was found to have charges for shoplifting and an outstanding warrant for a recent larceny charge on his record. At about the same time, Betty Bauckham's car was found and brought to the crime lab to process it for evidence. The car had been meticulously cleaned. That was obvious. They dusted for fingerprints inside the car, but found nothing. Then Henry Wallace's criminal file arrived, and Detective Gary McFadden noticed something. In his mugshot, he was wearing an earring in his left ear. It was a gold cross, and it matched the photo of the man taken at the ATM machine attempting to use Vanessa Mack's cash card. Detectives now knew that they needed to find Wallace and bring him in for questioning. That same day, they got another break. A palm print was found on the truck of Betty Bauckham's car. It seemed whoever had taken it had not thought to wipe off that one area. They put a rush on the print to see if they could determine who it belonged to, and they were starting to strongly suspect Henry Wallace. But the following day, March 12, 35-year-old Deborah Ann Slaughter, who had also worked with Sadie McKnight at Bojangles, was found dead in her apartment. Wallace knew she was a drug user and had arrived at her apartment to ask her to split a cocaine purchase with him. She told him she needed to save money for rent, so she declined. He began beating her and wrapped a towel around her throat, then let her loose and demanded money. She accused him of murdering Betty and Brandy. He raped her and then forced her to dress. He made her get her purse in order to give him her money, and when she handed it to him, she pushed and hit him while screaming for help. He choked her with the towel, but since she kept kicking at him, he grabbed a knife to stab her. He stabbed her a total of 38 times. He returned to her apartment a little while later to smoke the crack he'd purchased with her money. Meanwhile, the palm print had come back as belonging to Henry Lewis Wallace. 
detectives had tracked down his girlfriend, Sadie McKnight, who was shocked to find out that he was the suspected Charlotte Strangler. Her horror increased when she was questioned about stolen property and realized that her boyfriend had given her many gifts of jewelry, all of which was identified as being stolen from the murdered women. Connections were finally being made between Henry Wallace, the 10 murdered women, and the one missing woman. Both Shauna Hawk and Audrey Spain had worked at Taco Bell, where Wallace was their manager. Valencia Jumper was friends with Wallace's sister Yvonne. Michelle Stinson frequented the Taco Bell where Wallace worked and had become friendly with him. Vanessa Mack's sister worked at the Taco Bell with Wallace, and Vanessa had gone on one date with him. Betty Bauckham was a friend and co-worker of Wallace's girlfriend Sadie. Brandy Henderson was the girlfriend of Wallace's friend and co-worker. Caroline Love worked with Sadie McKnight at Bojangles and had been her roommate. Henry Wallace's last known residence was staked out on the night of March 11th and into March 12th. But later that day, two officers discovered him at a friend's house in Charlotte. He was arrested without incident and booked on suspicion of murder. After confronting him with all the connections he had to the murdered women, as well as the palm print found on Betty Bauckham's car, Wallace quickly confessed, providing detectives with all the details recounted in this episode. After signing his confession, he took police to the body of Caroline Love, who'd been missing for almost two years. He was then charged with a total of 11 murders. Wallace's trial didn't get underway until September of 1996. The defense requested a change of venue, since all of Charlotte had been on edge while the Strangler was at large and there had been a media firestorm since his identity was discovered. Once his connection to so many of the women was reported in the media, the serial killer of young black women in Charlotte became known as the Taco Bell Strangler. There was also a general outcry from the public about why it had taken so long to identify Wallace as the killer. Some were critical of the investigation and wondered if the race and lower economic status of the women were factors. Investigators would respond that they had sought out the help of the FBI during their investigation, but even their experts hadn't suspected a serial murderer was responsible. There were a few reasons for this. While the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit had experience in serial murder investigations, this type of profiling was still in its infancy, and some beliefs about serial killers, later proven erroneous, still made up the crux of their profiling work. For one, it was then still believed that most serial killers were white males. Henry Louis Wallace was African American, and though it would later be discovered that serial killers don't belong to any one race, at the time, this was still the premise that profilers were working under. Also, up until this time, most identified serial killers had been found to seek out random strangers as their victims. Wallace's victims were all co-workers, acquaintances, and even friends, so this was a new twist. Finally, while Wallace killed most of the women by ligature strangulation, there were enough differences in his modus operandi to lead investigators to believe they were committed by different perpetrators. Some of Wallace's victims had also been stabbed. One was set on fire, and one of the women's children had also been nearly killed. In addition, investigators first believed that not all of the women had been raped, since most were found fully clothed. It wasn't until March, when three women were murdered within a couple of days, and in close physical proximity to each other, 
that investigators saw the murders as the work of one person. FBI serial profiler and one of the original members of the Behavioral Science Unit had this to say about Wallace. If he elected to become a serial killer, he was going about it in the wrong way. Mr. Wallace always seemed to take one step forwards and two steps back. In other words, he was not the typical organized serial killer the FBI was most familiar with at that point in time. The state was asking for the death penalty, and in an attempt to spare Henry Wallace's life, his defense made a case for mental illness as a mitigating circumstance. A psychologist for the defense described Wallace's mother as controlling, violent, and emotionally abusive. The defense would claim that his mother had been left by her married lover, with two children out of wedlock, and she especially resented her son. Henry said he was punished harshly for normal childhood transgressions. His mother would hit him with a switch and sometimes assign this task to his older sister. He was also forced to wear girls' clothes, his sister's hand-me-downs, and this was humiliating to him. His father had abandoned him soon after his birth, and he had no male role models. It was implied that Wallace's mother resented men after being abandoned by both her own father and her lover, and that this anger spilled over to her son. All of this, the defense claimed, led to Wallace's anger towards women, especially when he felt humiliated or rejected. His first victim, Tashonda Bethea, rejected his romantic advances, but accepted his offer of rides and gifts, which Wallace said made him feel used. Several of the other women were young mothers, who Wallace was a kind and generous friend to. But he was sexually attracted to them, and when they didn't return his interest in kind, he lashed out. His drug use fueled his rage, and added the motivation to rob them to finance his drug habit. Two witnesses for the defense were foremost experts on serial killing. Robert Ressler from the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, now called the Behavioral Analysis Unit, and Dr. Ann Burgess, an expert on psychosocial development. Burgess, along with John Douglas and Robert Ressler, helped to develop modern psychosocial profiling of serial killers. Ressler testified as to Wallace's psychological instability, by describing his murders as displaying both organized and disorganized characteristics. Dr. Burgess gave her opinion that Wallace should be considered mentally ill and, in her opinion, was unable to separate fantasy from reality. On January 7, 1997, Henry Wallace was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder. He was not convicted of the murders of his two earliest victims, Tashonda Bethea or Sharon Nance because there was not enough evidence to link Wallace to those cold cases beyond a reasonable doubt. He was also convicted of eight counts of rape. On January 29th, Wallace was given nine death sentences and transferred to death row at Raleigh Central Prison. Since then, Henry Wallace has appealed his death sentence, claiming that his confessions were coerced. His latest appeal was rejected in 2005 by North Carolina's Superior Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has also denied his appeal, and he remains on death row. After his incarceration, Henry continued to talk to homicide investigators, telling them that he'd killed other women. He said that while he was in the Navy, he raped and murdered women at various ports of call around the world. By his estimation, there were at least 20 victims in total. These claims have not been verified. In 1998, Wallace married Rebecca Terejas in prison. Terejas was formerly employed as a prison nurse. 
the condemned man was allowed to sit in the same room and talk with his bride for twenty minutes before she was escorted from the death row wing where the ceremony took place. Recently, a documentary titled Bad Henry about the case of the murdered women in Charlotte was aired on Investigation Discovery. The title came from a comment Henry Wallace made after his confession to detectives in 1994. After he'd provided investigators with all the details of all his crimes, he said that he felt like a burden had been lifted. The investigator then told Wallace that he didn't seem like a bad guy by nature and wondered if he thought he might be schizophrenic. No, Wallace answered. There's only one Henry, a bad Henry. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. You can follow the show on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. There's also a Facebook discussion group where you can interact with other listeners about OUAC episodes and everything true crime. I just released a bonus episode for Patreon supporters only, a fifth chapter for the series Written in Blood. To become a supporter, get bonus episodes, early release ad-free content, and more, go to patreon.com. Once upon a crime. Until next time, be good to one another. Mm-hmm.